Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But straight the gate, narrow the way that leadeth unto life everlasting, and few there be that find it. Matthew seven thirteen and 14, you're all familiar with that passage. You know, friends, mankind has always had before him two roads, two paths with which to pursue. And, of course, such is an error in our very nature. At the beginning of the human family, it was made clear that we're creatures of choice. Genesis chapter 1, 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, through verse 27. Now, of course, as the Bible points out, God is a spirit. Uh, John four twenty four. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you and I, Luke 24, verse 39. So we don't look like God. Why, certainly not. That's not how you're made in his image and likeness. You see... First of all, we're immortal spirits. In other words, we'll never cease to be. Not only are we immortal spirits made in his image and likeness, but he gave us intelligence. We're able to assimilate evidence and testimony to reach conclusions based thereupon, to act upon one's own volition. God never made a robot. Oh, he could have. He could have brought into being a machine that would simply do his bidding. He didn't do that. He made man for companionship to be in communion with his maker in spiritual matters. God planted a beautiful garden eastward in Eden, you remember? There he placed the man and woman whom he had made. Everything essential to their happiness and their joy, their welfare, available right there. In the midst of the garden, there was a tree of life. Eat of it regularly. Maintain their youth. Live forever. Marvelous prospect. Oh, beside it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God placed a restriction upon the consumption of its fruit. You see, he said, Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day if thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now the reason for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was actually expressed in our text by the Lord. You see, when he said, There's a restricted, straightened, difficult way, if you will, that leads to life, that's said to be entered by a narrow gate, and there's a wide gate and a broad way that, of course, leads to destruction. Jesus said most people are in the broad way. We must decide what course in life to pursue. That's correct. We are creatures of choice. That's right. You recall Deuteronomy 30, 19. He said, I call to heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I've set before thee life and death, the blessing and the curse. Now listen to the encouragement. Therefore choose life that thou mightst live. Choice. That's it. Man must exercise his own volition. God will never take that away from you. Made in his image and likeness. Now Eve certainly understood what God said about that tree. You see, as far as free moral agents, friend, you can do anything you want to. If you're not going to be governed by what God said, 
oh, you might as well forget the whole thing. Kind of like some people today come along and say, well, I know what the Bible says on this or that particular subject, and, and I know what it says regarding the steps of salvation, but, but you know, it's not really relevant today. I mean, it, it's kind of archaic when you, when you think about it, and, and, and it doesn't really apply to today's world, and surely God doesn't mean for me to have to do those things, and, and, and you know, I believe I'll be, he'll be fine with me doing it this other way besides. This other way makes a whole lot more sense to me anyhow. Friends, we go to the Bible to get our doctrine. We don't go to the Bible to, pre, to uh, approve our pre-existing doctrine. You see, you can't do that. He said, these people honor me with their lips. They draw nigh to me with their mouths, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. We talked about that last night. But if you go to the Bible with some preconceived notion and or idea and try to justify it, you're already condemned. You see, it doesn't work that way. It's God who is to be honored. It's God who is to be revered. I am the offender. He is the offended. It's therefore his prerogative to lay down the conditions by which I may be reconciled to him. You see... Let's not go to the scriptures then with some preconceived notion and expect God to work it out for us. doesn't work that way. But when Satan approached Eve, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. When Satan approached Eve in the form of a serpent in Genesis 3, he said, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the, in the, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. You should be as gods, knowing good and evil. She understood exactly what God said. Well, then what's the problem? Listen to what Satan said to her. Ye shall not surely die. He said the same thing God said. He just added that one little word, not. And mankind has been doing that ever since. One little side note while we're in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3 verse 8, it says that they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the garden, or in the cool of the day that is. Now anthropomorphism is probably... Involved here distinguishing human, non-human characteristics for our understanding. But God's voice is heard in the garden saying, Adam, where art thou? Now, friends, that question wasn't for the fact that God didn't know. The omniscient, all-knowing God knew exactly where Adam was. That question was for Adam. You see, Adam needed to know the answer to that question. Adam, where art thou? Now, friends, that, the record says then that the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Lust of the flesh. Mm, good to look at. Lust of the eye. Desire to make one wise. Pride of life. All three avenues. She ate, gave to her husband, and he did eat with her. Wasn't it John in 1 John 2, 15 beginning that penned the words regarding those three avenues of sin? Well, sure, he said, love not the world, 
neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the vain glory or pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And he said, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So Satan tempted Eve here into exerting a degree of independence that resulted in separation from God. It's called sin. Mankind is a creature of choice. There are two roads. Remember our text says there's a narrow gate that leads into a straightened way. There's a wide gate that leads into a broad way. Few are in the straight way. The narrow way, many are in the broad way that leads to eternal ruin. Now just think with me for a moment. Of the billions of people who have lived upon the face of the earth and the seven and a half billion or so people that live today and the billions that may come after us save the Lord's coming, only a few will be found in the narrow way. Let me ask you a question tonight for you to ponder. How few is few? Have you ever thought about that? Someone says, well, that question is kind of silly, isn't it? On the contrary. It's a very sobering question and worthy of thought. You know, there are several instances or examples in Scripture of this. Let's just take Noah for a moment. Of the millions of people that probably were already upon the earth at that time, living at the time of the flood, only eight souls were saved. Noah, his wife, their three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. You remember the antediluvian period of history, Genesis chapter 6? The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took unto them wives all that they chose. Sons of God, yes, Genesis 4, 26. In the days of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam. Adam, Seth, Enos. In the days of Enos, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They refer to as the sons of God. Oh, the daughters of men or the descendants of Cain. Never did. They rather magnified the materialistic, the physical, the, the fleshly interests. A lot of those kind of people still around today. What was the result? Genesis 6, 5 and 6. He repented the Lord he made man, saw the wickedness was great upon the earth, and that every thought and imaginations of man's heart was evil. Not only that. Scripture says that every thought and imaginations of man's heart was only evil, and that continually, and God determined he would destroy all whose nostrils breathe the breath of life with a great deluge, a flood. But Genesis 6, verse 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Isn't that marvelous? What's grace do? Give instruction. Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God hath appeared, bring salvation to all men. Next verse, first word, instructing us. You mean God's grace provided instruction whereby Noah could escape death in the flood? Absolutely. God said, Noah, make thee an ark. Room shalt thou make in the ark, make it of gopher wood, pitch it within and without with pitch. Three decks are stories, one door in the side, one window and a cubic upward shalt thou finish it. 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Wait, wait, wait a minute. What do we have here? Noah 
found grace in the eyes of God. God's grace provided instruction whereby Noah and his family could live. Grace only? No, there'd be no ark. Faith only? Same problem, no ark. Well, how was Noah and his family saved from the flood? By grace on God's part through faith on Noah's part. Yeah, but how did that faith make itself manifest? Well, you remember Hebrews 11 verse 7? By faith, Noah, being warned of God concerning things not seen as yet, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Well, how did that manifest? Oh, Genesis 6.22, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. What's God called that? Hebrews 11.7 calls it faith. That's what saving faith is all about. Comes from hearing the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. Back to my point. Noah knew a few things about few, didn't he? What about Gideon? You remember Gideon, Judges chapter 7? Poorest in his tribe? I mean, he didn't even have a lot of faith, really. He started, oh, you remember his enemies, though, it described them? It says they were lined along the valley like grasshoppers. It says their camels were like sands of the seashore. It's as though they were unlimited in number. Started out with 32,000 men. God knocked 22,000 of them out the very first thing he said. He said, send those home who are fearful and afraid. Gideon, you got 10,000 men. Lord, how can that be? I mean... Their troops, their army, unlimited in number almost. How can that be? God wasn't through. He said, take them down to the river and try them. He said, every man that kneeleth down to drink versus those that lappeth like a dog or bringeth their water to their mouth with their hands, those are the ones I need. Send another 9,700 men home. Gideon, you got 300 men. Someone says, Lord, that's impossible, friends. We need never... Go talking to him with whom all things are possible as if it is impossible to accomplish what he wants done. He's got the strength. He's got the power. All he needs from me or wants from me is a willing heart and hand. I need to remember that. Gideon knew something about few, didn't he? What about the Israelites? Last, the last example and we'll move on. The Israelites, they remember they left the bondage of Egypt, not including women and children, the fighting men, age 20 and older. 603,550 fighting men, age 20 and older, who left the bondage of Egypt, saved the Levitical tribe. How many crossed over into the promised land? Two, Joshua and Caleb. They knew something about how few, few really was. But here's my point. If everyone in the Lord's church who has lived before us, who is living today, and those save the Lord's coming who will come after us, if every member of the Lord's church were to go to heaven, and we know that won't be the case, unfaithfulness, worldliness, Apathy, false teaching, people that don't pay any attention to what God said on the subject of marriage, etc. But let's just make supposition just for a moment. Let's say everyone in the Lord's church were to be saved in the day of judgment. That would still be minute 
compared to the billions of people who have lived upon this earth. How few is few? Worthy of thought. Someone comes along and says, well, when the Lord refers to the straight and narrow way, he he must mean it's really difficult. I mean, it's almost impossible to understand the Lord's will and conduct one's life in such a way as to be pleasing to the Heavenly Father. No, no, that isn't it. That isn't it. That's not the difference between the narrow and the broad way. Paul said, How by when by revelation was made known unto me the mystery I wrote unto thee before in few words, whereby when you read, you can perceive understanding the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, 3 and 4. Understanding God's will, friends, is not the problem. It's not the problem at all. Man can readily understand God's will. Then what is the difference between the narrow way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to damnation? Why are there so few saved and so many lost? I believe the answer is found in Paul's statement. We gave it a lesson or two back. It says, Now the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, that he cannot know them, because they are spiritually judged or discerned, of course. And he said in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven, talked about that in our Sunday morning class. God chose the weak things to confound the mighty, the foolish things to confound the wise. The things that are not, the things that are spies God chose. So he may bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his sight. Through 29, 1 Corinthians 1. Have you ever noticed that most people in this world do what comes naturally? That puts you in the broad way. That's the broad way. That will lead you to eternal ruin. To be pleasing to God, one must gird the loins of their mind. And if they're going to walk in harmony with the Lord's will, most are just not willing to do that. I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21. You're familiar with this passage. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, but he which doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven... Many will come unto me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out demons? And in thy name done many mighty, wonderful works? Then I'll profess unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. I liken him to a wise man, built his house upon the rock. The rains ascend, the floods gain, the winds blew, beat upon that house. And it fell not. Why? It's found upon the rock. Oh, and he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, I liken him to a foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains descend, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, and great was the fall thereof. Now someone says, wait just a minute, I don't really understand this. What's the difference in these two people? They both, both heard the word of the Lord, there's no question. They both saw the need to build the character houses, right. They both were sufficiently religious and diligent to build. The house of the one stood, the house of the other fell. Difference? The one did what the Lord said do and the way the Lord said do it. The other one did something else. Friends, it doesn't matter what else it is you're doing. If you're not basing your faith upon a thus saith the Lord. If you're not doing that which is prescribed in divine revelation to the salvation of your soul. You're building on sand. You remember in Luke 6.46. Along these same lines. Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Friend, there are people all over this land today calling upon Jesus as Lord. 
They talk about the church. They talk about his love. They talk about his grace, his mercy. They talk about his dying on the cross, the great sacrifice that he made for mankind. They don't know him. They don't know him. Oh, they may know some facts about him, but they've never come into covenant relationship with him. Don't call me Lord, he said, until you enthrone me in your heart, your life. Make me the dominating, motivating, undergirding principle of your thought, speech, and conduct. Then I'm your Lord. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? You see, one must be willing to gird up the loins of his mind. That is to be girded with truth. As we read in Ephesians chapter 6, and you know that chapter there in Ephesians 6. By the way, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And it's interesting, Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the references to the battle armament of the Roman soldier. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, holding the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, if we're willing to put on that armament every day, friends, victory is ours. It's guaranteed. But without the employment of that, of that armor, I'm no match for the wiles of the devil. That's his point. That's his point. This is the instruction booklet that came with you and I. You see, if you want to be balanced in life, if you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, if you want your soul anchored in proof, the instructions are found in God's word. That's it. That's it. You know, if we look at people, if you look at the people that you come in contact every day, if you look around at the lives of our society today, if you watch TV any, watch the news and what all is going on in the world today, how much joy and happiness and contentment, peace do you see? Not a lot. Oh, sometimes I see a lot of excited people running around, you know, who can't seem to slow down for a minute to think about what really matters in life. But you see that genuine joy and happiness and contentment and peace is promised to those who love the Lord and who are walking in harmony with his will. Those through God's promises have the hope of eternal life. Happy externally? Not always. No, you see, we are subject to all the same debilities and trials and tribulations and and some of the problems that exist, and I mean, common to the human family. We're subject to all of those things. But happiness is an inside job. And by that I mean, in the storms of life, you have the anchor that holds. The world doesn't have that. But you remember those comforting words of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, beginning. He says, For which cause we faint not, but though the outward man perish, Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For this light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now watch it. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, oh, they're temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if this earthly house of our tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal, in the heavens, through chapter 5, verse 1. 
Friend, if you're willing to follow in the footsteps of Christ, you can stand 10 feet tall when everything about you is sinking. You can have a song in your heart on the darkest night. You see, we need to keep our sights on things eternal. You know, in speaking of material things, have you ever noticed that people are drawn to whatever they think will make them happy? All of us can be tempted to think too much about the accumulation of things and materialism. And it's all around us. Boy, I need this. And if I just had a few of those and one of these and maybe some of that, I'd be happy. We see that all the time. You see, materialism and the craving for the things of this world is one of the differences between the narrow way and the broad way. When the Lord said in Matthew 6, 33 and 34, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's it right there. First above mother, first above father, first above your wife, first above your husband, first above your children, first above your hobbies, first above your clothing, your needs, your necessities, your job. He said first, and he said if you do that, I'll throw everything else you need into boot. That is the physical necessities of life. That's promise. Well, somebody says, now wait a minute. You mean the Lord's telling me I can just kind of fold my arms and sit back and he'll supply everything? He didn't say that at all. That's not at all what he's saying. If any man will not work, neither let it be. See, I have to do my part. But what he's saying is if you trust in him and you put your trust in him and not only that, you seek his kingdom, he'll take care of those necessities. You're not going to have to worry necessarily about those things. You trust God and he'll take care of it. You know, and if you don't do that, well, friends, a lot of people are just miserable and trying to get the things you need. You're trying to, you're going to find you're going to die and you're going to leave them. You're not going to need them very long. A consuming them that will not last. Out of them there's no lasting joy and from them there's no fulfillment. Got to be faithful. Got to be diligent. Someone says, well, in speaking of material things, doesn't the Bible say that money's the root of all evil? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, money is neither good nor bad in and of itself, but it can be used for either. Now, it's simply a medium of exchange. Friend, you can be flat broke and be rich in the eyes of God. God isn't necessarily concerned about how much money you have. What's he concerned with? My heart. My heart. What is my attitude? What is, my, what is that which I emphasize? Where do I put the emphasis? What am I focused on? I need to be good steward. Need to be good steward. Friends, we need to walk in the narrow way. But let's move on. Time's getting away here. Since the Lord said, few there be that find it. Few there be that find the way that leads to eternal life. Let me ask this question. Why will few enter the narrow way with its great promise of life everlasting? It is certainly not because entry is impossible for some. Calvinism, of course, would make it impossible for some to be saved. You see, its doctrine of predestination or foreordination teaches that there are just a certain number of people predestined to be eternally destroyed, and they can do nothing to change it whatsoever. Can you imagine such a false teaching? 
I mean, that would make God responsible for every lost soul. I mean, just on the very face of that doctrine, without any examination or, or study or anything, you know that's false. The predestination or foreordination taught in Scripture is of character, not number. Not number. Uh, no, no, Ephesians 1, Paul says, in verse 4, beginning, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, without blemish, before him in love, having foreordained, there's that word, us unto adoption as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself according to the good pleasure of his will. <clears throat> What'd you say, Paul? Listen to that first part. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. That's character. That's character. If you and I choose to be faithful and walk in harmony with the Lord's will, that is give our lives in submission to the instruction in his word. God said before the foundation of the world, that's the person. That's the kind of person that will stand justified through the shed blood of my son. Thus will be saved in Christ Jesus. So it's not it's so it's the predestination, the foreordination of character, not individuals, not number. Upon what is my acceptability with God condition? Certainly not upon predestination or foreordination. You see, I'm either among the saved or among the lost. Among responsible humanity, there's just two classes. Lost, saved, world, church, church, ecclesia, called out, translated, church. Oh, that's the one you read about in the New Testament. You see, Ephesians 2.12 says you're without with God and without hope. Or Ephesians 1.7 says you are in Christ, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So just the two classes. Among responsible or accountable humanity, lost, saved. There's no middle ground. There's no no man's land. God places before us life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that thou mightst live. I am a creature of choice. I can choose to walk with the Lord or not. Isn't that what Paul said over there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 21? He said, if a man therefore purge himself from these... He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, <clears throat> meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. So then many will not enter the narrow way. Not because it's impossible for them to do so. Peter writes, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 4, who would have all men to be saved come to the knowledge of the truth. For in salvation is our God's desire. Our salvation is what God desires. Absolutely. If we cannot choose salvation, then, then why did Jesus word in our text as he did underneath the straight gate? Uh, knowing all the while, why would you urge people to enter in if it's impossible? Well, the very idea. Our becoming a Christian is very simple. But living the, the life as a faithful Christian, that's, that's not easy. That's difficult. See, I must make a conscious effort every day that I'm going to live righteously in this negative, physical, materialistic world, whatever the circumstances. In fact, oftentimes, my spiritual growth may not come amongst companions and friends and great camaraderie. Sometimes I may learn the basic lessons among my enemies that make me more and more 
like Jesus Christ. You see, that takes commitment, friends. That takes faith. That takes love for the Lord. That takes determination on my part. Most people are not willing to do that. That's why they're found in the broad way. That's why many are in the broad way. If you want to walk the straight way, you can't. You can't. Otherwise, why would the Lord, you know, have told his apostles to go on all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, knowing all the while there's nothing they could do about it. According to the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination or foreordination, they're already lost or saved. Well, the very idea. You and I must choose what road we will take. Anyone who wants to come to the Lord can. You remember the statement there in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. He that heareth, let him say, Come. And he that is a thirst, let him come. He that will, let him take of the water of life freely. Isn't that marvelous? So then why will only a few people, by comparison with the masses, enter in the narrow, straightened way that leads to life? Well, let me suggest one more thing. That many will not enter the narrow way, not because they couldn't know. Well, to say that the Lord would urge man to enter the narrow way, knowing all the while that he failed to provide understandable instructions, is a very indictment of the goodness of God. He made the conditions of salvation as simple as can be, according to Paul, and understandable. Ephesians 3, 4. If God loved us enough to let his son die that horrible death on the cross under darkened heavens, shed his blood for each one of us, then he's going to provide understandable instructions for our salvation. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Friend, that's not terra firma. That's not the ground in which we walk. Psalms 33, 7 and 9, or 7 through 9, God spoke and it stood still. He commanded. It was done. He's going to burn this thing up. He's not talking about terra firma. Not talking about the not talking about this beautiful earth that he made that he was pleased with. No, no. He's talking about you and me. God so loved you and me, world, that he did what he gave his only begotten son. Not to wear robes of royalty or sit in the king's courts, but to walk the dusty streets and share the load with the common man. Ultimately to die in your stead and mine. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul made a similar statement, didn't he? You remember in Romans 8, 28, and I'm going to wind this thing up here, I promise. He said, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Wait a minute, Paul. Some things? No, all things. Yeah, but somebody says you have to consider the context. That's right. Verse 28, Romans 8. Uh, No, no, what I mean is not everything happens to a Christian's good. Well, certainly not. He never said that. As a matter of fact, I dare say that most things that happen to a Christian from a worldly standpoint would be negative. That isn't what he said. Who wants to go to prison? Who wants to be beaten five times with 39 stripes by a cat of nine tails? Nobody. Who wants to be beaten three times with a Roman rod? Nobody. Who wants to be drug out of the city of Lystra and left for dead? Nobody. Who suffered that? A man who suffered for doing the will of God? Well, someone's that's, that's surely not good. How'd that happen to a Christian? Just like it happened to anybody else. Yeah, but Paul, you said everything happens to a Christian's good. No, he didn't. Read it. He didn't say everything happened to a Christian's good. 
He said to them that love the Lord, all things work together for good. Marvelous indeed. Drop down three verses to verse 31. I can't talk about this without finishing the chapter real quick. What should we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know what the answer to that is? doesn't make a bit of difference. What's that? If God be for us, it doesn't make any difference who's against you. If God be for us, who is against us? If God spare not his own son, but deliver him up for us all, how shall not he through him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Is God that justifieth? Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ Jesus that died, you rather is raised, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay. <laughs> In all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. <coughs> For I persuade that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord through the end of the chapter, verse 39, Romans 8. Isn't that marvelous? Friend, he loves you. How secure we can be as a child of God. All things pertaining to life and godliness are revealed in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Validated by his shed blood, Hebrews 9, 16, and 17. Friends, it's a matter of choice. You and I must decide. We must decide what course we will pursue. Narrow way, broad way. It's our choice. And I must make the decision where we'll walk in this life and thus ultimately where you and I will spend eternity. If you're subject to Lord's invitation tonight, we invite you to come. There may be someone here in this audience tonight who's not yet obeyed the gospel. Friends, you'll not find a more opportune time than right now. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, are you willing to repent? Luke 13, 3 and 5. To confess his name before men, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. To be buried with him in baptism, Mark 16, 16, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. Raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 and 4. A new creature, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Continually covered by his precious blood, 1 John 1 at verse 7. Marvelous indeed. If you're here as a child of God, there's maybe you haven't been the right kind of influence Maybe you've let the world creep into your life. You've got some things that shouldn't be in your life. Friends, let us pray with you and for you. You can be restored tonight through repentance, confession, and prayer. Somebody says, I've been so bad. I've done so many things. I've been so many places. I mean, I've lived for the devil. Friend, that's the kind of person Jesus came to save. Luke 19.10. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, someone says, I'm too old. Friend, you're never too old. You're never too old. And if you live a hundred years upon this earth, it's a snap of a finger compared to eternity. Friends, it's your choice. Broadway, narrow way. If we can assist you tonight, let it be known as together we stand and sing.